Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. We have a wonderful guest on. She produces a thought-provoking show, and the conversation is great. But before we get to that, I want to know what else is great in the world, including you. How are you? Are you great? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing great here. Very excited to uh, bring our fine audience this conversation today with journalist Amy Donaldson. She is a journalist and has also started a new podcast called The Letter. It is about the murder of Zachary Snar from 1996. Zachary Snar was murdered by a young man, Jorge Benvenuto. This was a, a random shooting. The tragedy really comes into play when you look at the details of Yvette, who was Zachary's girlfriend, and himself outside taking pictures of the moon. They're about to go into college. This was their first, quote, adult date. And then out of nowhere, this tragedy happens. Yvette survives miraculously and Zachary passes. And Amy's storytelling technique in the letter doesn't so much revolve around the crime itself and any punishment that happened with Jorge. It revolves around how both families are dealing with this grief. And it's a great podcast. It's a deep dive into a case that that is solved, but there's still a lot of hanging emotion left in this case. Amy speaks with Zach's parents. It's really an interesting thing because Zach's mom, Sai, has a relationship with his killer. Zach's mom, Sai, has stated that she has forgiven him and loves him. And that takes amazing strength. I don't know if I would be able to do that. I think we even talk about that a little bit in the interview. It takes amazing strength, and it's definitely worth the listen just to wrap your head around how someone can come to that conclusion after dealing with such a tragic moment in their life. Yeah, agreed. I don't know how Sai can do it. It's pretty impressive. We definitely ask you to check out the letter. I think you'll really like it. There's a link in the show notes to subscribe. And Tim, if they want to hear this episode without the ads... Please tell me that there's a place that they can go. Actually, yes. They can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and they can subscribe to Crawlspace Premium where they get every single episode of Crawlspace ad-free as well as our bonus show called the Crawlspace Crypt. And we just did our first Ask Us Anything yesterday. So if you are a subscriber... Stay tuned for more of those and you will receive email notifications so you can pop that on your calendar and be ready for our next Ask Us Anything. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Amy Donaldson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, we really appreciate you coming on the show, but we equally, if not more, appreciate the work that you're doing in your new show, The Letter, and we can get into that in a little bit. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners, a little bit of your background, and then we can get into your Starry Night t-shirt? <laughs> My Mickey Mouse Starry Night t-shirt, yeah. <laughs> so I'm a print journalist by training. I've been writing for newspapers since I was in soccer sophomore in high school, and uh, they offered free pizza for anybody who wanted to work on the newspaper staff. I covered crime and corrections um, most of my time on the news desk uh, for about eight years and then uh, had thoughts of quitting. And I was actually writing a book about a serial killer here in Utah. My youngest daughter was born during that time and I needed health insurance. So I called my old boss and he was in sports and he said, come do sports. Like we could do some really cool stuff in sports. And i Love sports, grew up a sports fan. I think I can play every sport, but not well. And I'm really competitive. So I went and, and gave it a try and hated it for about a year. And then 
found women's and high school sports and really loved covering prep sports, really loved covering women's collegiate and Olympic sports. I've been to seven Olympic games. And then probably about four or five years ago, I started really hating that I was the only woman in every room I went in. (laughs) And so I started thinking about coming back to the news desk. And I did that right before COVID. I worked night police beat and covered a lot of really tough stuff for about a year and a half. I was just going to quit. And my boss came to me and said, do you want to try your hand at podcasting? I had done a little bit of sports talk radio for 12 years. Uh, I did a high school show. And then I started a podcast in the world's worst political year, 2016. My colleague and friend and I, we decided we we'd start a podcast that encouraged people to talk to people who disagreed with them. Yeah, that has been really fun, but it was kind of baptism by fire in the podcast universe. I have always been a fan of narrative storytelling. And so when I found a podcast that, you know, did journalism, but with a narrative story, I was like, I I have to learn to do this. It's a lot harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of how I got into podcasting, not the front door, but maybe a side door that no one knew they left open. (laughs) (laughs) But this podcast is probably one of the reasons I took the job at KSL, because I think I probably would have just kept doing my own thing. But this story came to me through a running friend, actually, about four years ago. He just knew I was doing podcasts and said, hey, I have a really interesting podcast idea. And how many times have you heard that, right? Like every journalist has heard like, I've got the next big story for you and it's terrible. He actually sent me a letter that his aunt had written about delivering a letter from a killer to the family whose son that he had killed. And I was sobbing and I was just, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I said, I, I just have to call these people and find out what happened. So that's kind of how it started. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. KSL has uh, helped support you on your journey. Yeah. So I went to them and said, look, I have this letter and this idea. I don't know what I'm doing. I think I want to do it on my own. The family said they were in. We did interviews and then they changed their mind and didn't want to do it. I kept doing the research just because I couldn't leave the story alone. It was just to me just so fascinating. And there were so many interesting aspects of the story that I didn't realize. I mean, I worked on the news desk when this crime occurred in 96. You know, random shootings have become like almost an everyday thing now. And back then they were super rare. And I covered crime in the 90s. So I knew this kind of get tough on crime, sentence kids to prison straight away. I kind of knew something about the climate that this crime had occurred in. I just couldn't leave it alone. So eventually the family changed their minds. They liked a kid that I tormented them into participating, but they saw a purpose in doing it. And and, and part of that is, I think the story is pretty inspiring. We did a speaking engagement last year, the mom, Sai Snar and I, and people stayed after. It just blew me away for an hour afterwards, trying to figure out how to use what we had talked about in their own lives. And that's when I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is worth uh, the pain that it's going to cause. And it is a terrifying story. I mean, it's a nightmare. When you start exploring the details of it, I think it becomes so real because I think all of us can imagine ourselves in that scenario and how we've probably been in those situations before and nothing's happened. It's everyday life. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that 
it's always interesting to me and it's been fascinating to me how interested people are in crime stories this is long before they were you know a top podcast genre people want to know that what happens to people this terrible thing that happened to someone cannot happen to them you know i ran today i'm a runner and uh the woman eliza fletcher who was just kidnapped and killed today everyone's running 3.4 miles for her because she was 34 years old and but you know you want to look for things in that story that say oh this can't happen to me but when you look at it most of the time, what you see is this real possibility that that there, but for the grace of God, go you, right? Like that could happen to any of us. And I think that if we looked at news stories more with uh, empathy, instead of looking for what disqualifies you from being potentially in this person's shoes, if we just tried to have some empathy for where they were at and why they were there. I think we would be able to talk about some of the things that, that grow out of these situations. Like one of the things I talked to a, a vet, Rodier is a survivor in this story. A 19-year-old kid approaches two 18-year-old kids while they're out on a date shooting pictures of the moon and just shoots them for no reason. Unloads his gun twice. The 18-year-old woman survives. Her name's Yvette Rodier. She's a prosecutor today in Salt Lake County. The young man, Zachary Snar, was killed. I think every bullet that hit him would have been fatal, according to the medical examiner. At the time, people were looking at it and saying, well, what were they doing? Or what were they involved in? Or It was, you know, prime gang time in, in Salt Lake City. Um, so were they in gangs? You know, we would just look for all these reasons for why this happened to them and it was sad but it couldn't happen to us or our kids and what people saw was like oh my gosh these are our kids like this could happen to any of us and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting when you're covering crime or writing about it is the stories where people see themselves or the ones that are the most unnerving because they pay attention in a way that they don't when they think oh that could never happen to me I don't go running by myself so that could never happen to me well, I go running by myself every morning, right? So that could happen to me. And so I think that one of the things that interested me when we talked about revisiting this was I wanted people to understand more than what we get when we do a crime story. I've covered crime so much of my career and people lose interest so quickly. And nowadays our newsfeed is just like ridiculously full of terrible story after terrible story. And it's hard to even muster up the energy to connect in a real way. And I, I guess my hope with this story was if we told it in a narrative style that people would slow down, take some time and just feel grief, feel connection, feel guilt, feel forgiveness. I mean, all the things that happen in this podcast. I mean, I can tell you that I didn't write a single episode where I didn't cry most of the way through the writing and rewrites of it. <laughs> I mean, my boss on more than one occasion said, are you okay? <laughs> Do we need to get you some help? But it's just the act of connecting, which we think we're more connected now, but I think we're actually more disconnected in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. We talk about that a lot because we talk about all of these emotional, tragic, true crime, unsolved, cold cases, and we do it via Zoom, and we think that we're all connected, but, I mean, we're doing this virtually, and you kind of lose that human element to it when it's all digital nowadays, even though we're saying we're all connected. It's almost like this you know, pseudo-connection that we feel like we have. And you said something interesting about understanding that there will be damage to, that will be done. Recently, we had a guest on who teaches a course in media. What's the exact thing that he does? It's like the... It's basically like podcast ethics, journalistic ethics and podcasting. We had brought up this concept of if you don't come from a background of journalism where ethics are already in place or any background yeah. in a professional setting where ethics are in place and you just come into true crime podcasting. We had Rabia Shadri on one time and she had said, if that's the case, 
just come in with the mindset, do no harm. And this dean that we had on recently said, I kind of disagree with that because if you are coming on and you're talking about this, you have to understand that you will do harm and it's just who you're doing harm to. So is that where you're coming from when you said that, that this is this damage that you know is going to be caused and it's almost like collateral? It's impossible to cover these types of stories and not cause some kind of pain. Do you also cause other things like education and healing and things like that? Sure. The thing I learned right out of the gate covering a story about a seven-year-old who shot his six-year-old brother with his dad's gun was that there's no way for me to enter into this conversation in any way, just even if all I'm giving you are the basic bare bones facts of what happened. There is no way for me not to cause harm. And one of the things I was asking of everyone involved in this story was to go back and relive what is essentially the worst experience they've ever had, right? The ripples are ripples you don't even think about. Like that's one of the things I loved about the story in the end was all the ways in which we're really connected, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge or not. But at the end of the day, and I would agree with your professor who said, you know, there isn't a way not to do harm. You are taking real experiences of real human beings and you're using them for entertainment. Are you using them for education and for enlightenment or to start conversations that we should be having every day? Sure. But at the end of the day, we're taking tragedy and we're using it to entertain ourselves. Our team, KSL, we we have struggled mightily with. My colleague, who is the host and creator and writer of the, of the Cold podcast, like we have many, many deep emotional conversations about, are we doing the right thing? How do we do the right thing and acknowledge that it's still going to hurt. And that's sort of where I was at with this podcast. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'll be really grateful to this family for, because I, as much as possible to say to everyone involved, including the shooter and his family who did not participate in the podcast, but he wrote letters with me. And I, I share some of those letters later in the podcast. And then his family has heard the podcast. I should say Yvette Rodier, the survivor, will not listen to the podcast. Uh, she's participated. She's been super helpful and supportive. She sent me a really lovely email last night that I cried about. Just the publicity from this is causing her some issues, you know, some mental health issues. And, you know, I think it's good to talk about that and to acknowledge that because we have to process this stuff. This crime happened to specific people, but it impacted an entire community. Like it reverberated through a lot of places and people who never met these families. It is important that we we discuss and figure out how to process that so that we're not all just in our separate universes, you know, not understanding and hurting and and struggling on our own. It's a really tough balancing act. I said when I left and did high school sports, I mean, covering high school sports is literally the most uplifting thing you can do. It's like puppy dogs and rainbows and everyone's glad to see you and you get free hot dogs. And, you know, it just like literally like the greatest thing. And then you realize there's all these other elements to high school sports that are not so puppy dog and rainbow. And it's complicated. Life is complicated. I was like, this is so great. This is what I want. No one's going to be crying because they read my story the next day. (laughs) And then I realized that's not true. I mean, life is hard. Life is complicated. and It's never just one thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm grateful for their willingness to trust me. It's been an awesome responsibility. I haven't slept for the last four or five days because I've just been worrying about how this will land with them. Um, And then I know there are people out there who have experienced things like they have experienced who are going to be impacted by this. It's a lot to process and a lot to 
think about, but it's been for me and really everyone involved from the defense lawyer to the prosecutor, to the police officer, to the people involved. It's been one of the most transformative experiences we've had. And can you tell us a little bit more about the story? Like, where does it come from and who was involved? The idea came from the woman who delivered the letter from the killer's family to the woman who lost her son, the super short version of this story. It's so complicated. And that's one of the things It was so weird. And you know, how it's one of those things where like, what, you know, this person and Like, I realized I had interviewed the mom of the kid who was killed for a story, and I had totally forgotten until I was in her living room, and I'm like, wait, I've been here before. Like, I know you. And it was just a strange sort of six degrees of separation. And then we just kept finding these connections throughout. Uh, Like, when they said the lead detective, he was one of my favorite sources I had when I worked crime. We had a great relationship. I have a ton of respect for him, Keith Stevens. And when I found out it was him, I was like, this is like a gift from God because trying to find a police officer who's retired, who has done a bunch of cases, sometimes they're willing to talk, sometimes they're not. And one of the defense lawyers I never did find, but the other one, I weirdly had a connection to him and was able to you know, ask him to be involved. But one thing that struck me about this story was just the generosity of everyone involved. So anytime I called someone and said, hey, Here's what's happening. Here's why I want to do the story. The letter was obviously the way into the story, but really it's about more than just that. The letter is unlike anything I've ever covered. It's just a crazy miracle turn of events. And it continues to evolve. The story of Yvette, the survivor, and just the story of how we grieve and how we fail each other and how we save each other is to me worth telling. Maybe it wouldn't be, everyone else wouldn't love it because it doesn't have this weird and miraculous twist in it. But for me, that is worth exploring and has been one of the highlights of doing this has been realizing how many extraordinary people are just out there doing their thing. And we don't write about them. We don't read about them. They just have figured out how to navigate some really horrendous things and come through it. Really, the first three episodes are what happens the night of the shooting. The first one is the Snar family, what they experience in learning that Zachary's been killed. The second episode is a vet and what happens to her, what she experiences. And then the third episode is really the manhunt. It's about the killer and why he did what he did and what led to this. And then the fourth episode is uh, the court case, um, you know, how it's resolved in court, what that was like. And then five and six, I call the long tale of grief. And that's five is the snars and six is a vet. And that is what happens when the cameras and the cops go away, when no one's looking and you have to go rebuild your life. What is that like? What what happens there? When we did group listens in our little uh, department, one and two were hard for people to listen to, obviously, because it's a really traumatic event and a shocking crime. But five and six were have been my my boss just listened to the final edit of five and she said I cried again. I mean, just it's just it's the reality of something like this. We don't want to know this, but we we know it intellectually. People are changed by these events, but I want you to feel it because I want you to feel what it feels like when they come out the other side. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just, you just have a different life than you ever wanted. And then seven is the letter, what happens, how it gets to them. And then eight is just my gift to all of you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. This story starts out in like a very kind of romantic way. Zach and Yvette are on a first date and he's trying to show her how to take pictures of the moon. Yeah. Really quite innocent and romantic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like teenagery romantic, right? They had been friends since junior high. I think they were always been fond of each other. But this was a, like she said, they're kind of their adult moment, right? They were moving from childhood to adult life. They were going to the university in a couple of weeks. And this was their date. So where they could talk about grown up stuff and what they wanted out of their lives and what they planned to do with their lives and all their hopes. And he was an avid photographer. His parents still have pictures that he took uh, hanging in his house. She worked at a, his mom worked at a photography studio here in Salt Lake and he'd taken a photography class and had done really well and loved it and just wanted to show her what it was like to to take some pictures of the full moon. And I, if you've been in the mountains in Utah, like I'm actually going to go hiking the next full moon. There's no better place to be than the mountains in Utah during a full moon. It's really an unbelievable experience. But yeah, so that's what they're doing and just good kids doing something fun and this happens. I read an old article that was published in 2010 about this and it just broke my heart because there was a line that one of the rescuers who was in the helicopter with her and they were flying away, told her, and he's quoted in the article saying, it's a beautiful night, let's just enjoy this helicopter ride. You know that that person is just grasping for something to say that's comforting. Yeah, that's actually another thing I loved about doing this was all the ways in which they share, like my daughter, who's a therapist, she shared with me, she listened and she said, when Sydney, this sister of Zach says, we had to comfort, there were 1,500 people at his funeral, some people they'd never seen before. People came out and stood in line. You feel moved because you feel this connection, right? But she felt like they had their own grief to carry, but then they had to carry this grief for the community. They had to help. And that's something I wasn't aware of until a few years ago. My, I had a cousin who died and he'd just gotten married a few months before his before he died. We went to the viewing and his, his wife said, oh, I'm sorry for your loss too. And it's the first time it occurred to me that the people at the center of the grief would also feel responsible for my grief. I didn't really realize they would feel some need to mitigate what I was struggling with. And so I think we do a lot of things, A, to make ourselves feel better. <laughs> like this isn't that bad. I'm definitely one of those people. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the movie Inside Out, but when that came out, my kids said, mom, you're Amy Poehler. <laughs> because I'm always like, no, we can't be sad. Let me cheer you up. Let's do something. Let's go on a hike. Let's go on a run. I have a trouble sitting in the sadness. 
And I think a lot of us do. Like, it's not, if we stay here too long, we might get trapped. It might become where we live. And so I have trouble just sitting still in the grief. And I think this story makes you do that. It is hard. It is really hard. And some of the bonus content that we have, I felt the need to talk to some experts and like just put some of these things that are happening into context that you might be feeling things that you don't know why. Like I've never had a kid murdered. Why do I, why am I sobbing all the way through this thing, right? Why do I feel this way? And yeah, I think I learned a lot about grief and our discomfort, our fear of it, the reason we isolate each other, the reason we think that it's finite, that you're going to get over it. I think one of the things I've come away with from this is grief is love. And if you love somebody, you're never going to be done grieving. There's no such thing as closure. And I think intellectually, I knew that. Now I feel that after telling these stories. And I wonder if you experience any guilt when you're feeling so bad about this. And then you think about, because it happens on our end too, like a lot where we're like, I don't deserve to feel as bad as I do because it didn't happen to me. Yeah. Well, and um, one of the grief experts I talked to, she said, it's the grief Olympics. And this happened during COVID. Remember, you know, when they canceled all the school sports and stuff. And I remember people saying, kids need to quit crying. And this is not the worst thing that's going to happen to them. Their track season got canceled or their graduation ceremony got canceled. But, you know, people are dying and people are losing everything. And, you know, they lost their businesses. And everyone kept saying, like, whenever someone would bring up their grief about something like, oh, I, I miss college football, you know, God forbid you miss something that's entertaining, <laughs> you know, or light because everyone was there to tell you that there were people who were suffering and you weren't entitled to that grief. And I think that was one of the things that struck working on this project through COVID was very helpful because I kept saying to people, let me grieve whatever it is I grieve. If my kid is sad because they don't get to run track and it's their senior season, then they get to be sad about that. You get to be sad about whatever it is you're sad about. That's your right as a human being to feel your feelings. We always get in this competition, like, you know, what you're feeling. If you're sad or or if you relate into something in the story, it brings up something in you. You're going to be like, well, but at least my kid didn't get murdered or at least I didn't. You know what I mean? Like, I loved talking to the experts about, like, why do we do that? And part of it is a defense mechanism. And part of it is we're just uncomfortable with our own feelings, except for happiness. I am definitely in that category. I'm like, let's just move right through this. Well said. And we do use the humor as a defense mechanism from time to time. And that's incredibly important. And that was one of my other questions is what's your feelings on true crime comedy podcasts that will run the line? Some of them cross the line and they are not doing their job, but some of them use comedy as the doorway into a tragic topic. Uh, What's your feelings on that? You know, that's not for me. There are definitely some that I've listened to that I'm like, meh, yeah, this is not for me. And also, I don't like the idea of revisiting or rehashing crimes just because, even if they're great stories, even if they're interesting or compelling, right? For me, the reason has to be, it has to counterbalance the damage that I'm doing by consuming something that happened to somebody as entertainment. There has to be a reason. And there are really great podcasts out there. And a lot of the crime podcasts are aimed at examining the criminal justice system, uh, looking for somebody, you know, a perpetrator, looking at forensic, how the rise and fall of forensic evidence in the criminal, you know, there's a reason we want to look at those stories. But I have heard a few. I didn't think of this as a crime podcast. Once I realized that was where we were going to be, the space, I had listened to crime podcasts, but I had 
taken a break from them. But my husband's a criminal defense lawyer. I spent all these years covering crime and corrections. Like you don't understand how jaded you become. <laughs> and I wanted my kids to have one parent that didn't think the world sucked. So I had to like try to try to become the more positive parent because my husband's like everyone's you know trying to kill us and you know everyone's bad and don't let anyone I mean people come to the door and he he won't even open the door you know so I mean and I am in it I come from a home where like the door is unlocked and oh the neighbors just came in and it's a uh, it's a tough genre I think I think there are podcasts for everybody for whatever it is you uh, feel you need from the genre. But yeah, I definitely avoid ones that I feel like they just want to talk about something terrible. And your podcast and the story that you've really chosen to tell out of this is uh, a bit about survival as well, because Zach was killed, but Yvette survived. Uh, you mentioned that she became a, a prosecutor. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible yeah. to me. She actually worked with victims for a while. I mean, the thing that's remarkable is what she's going to go through a couple more things in episode six that you're just going to be like, what? And I didn't even put everything in. I used to love, I'd go to a high school game or practice and talk to the coaches about, Hey, who can I, you know, I knew I'm looking for a good story. And they would be like, well, we don't have any good stories. And you know, it was never true. Always. You could find a good story. Most people have good stories to tell. They just don't know. When you walk around and you're talking to people at the gym or, you know, at work or whatever, you don't really know what they're carrying with them, what they've been through. I think nothing illustrates that more to me than Yvette's story. If you met her, you would not know. And my husband, you know, he's gone against Yvette in court. Like he's a defense lawyer. She's a prosecutor. They've had cases against each other. And He's incredibly fond of her. You know, he listened to some of the earlier drafts and was just blown away by what she's been through. And to me, surviving that night was definitely heroic. Like that's, it's unbelievable what she goes through. But the reason I think she's like a rock star, an amazing hero to me, when you hear the life she rebuilds for herself in spite of all of the stuff that she has to deal with. And really the snars are the same way. I think that's one of the things you think that this is the worst part, but it's not, it's a lot of people who've lost someone will tell you like once the funeral's over and everybody goes home and you have to just be in your house and live your different life. Now, this person that was integral to your everyday life is gone. That's the real challenge. That's the really painful thing. And that's what we explore in those other two episodes and the ways in which they succeed and the ways in which it is hard. And for me, those were explorations of grief during COVID that were really hard, but also really helpful. I was glad to be doing it at that time. I need to revisit the fact that your husband went up against her in court. No, like he's known her for a while. Yeah. Funny enough, when I came home and told him, I'm like, you can't believe the story I heard about from my friend Tanner Bell. He knows Tanner. So I'm telling him the story and he's like, wait, wait, I know this story. This is a vet. This is a vet Rodier, one of my favorite prosecutors. And I was like, what? She's a prosecutor? <laughs> How did that happen? Again, like there's all these weird connections. And like, I just felt like I wouldn't have this many connections to a story that I wasn't meant to tell. <laughs> my husband actually uh, plays the prosecutor in episode two. So <laughs> <laughs> very cool. His voice gave you. <laughs> wait, wait, this is this is too wild. Yeah. Your husband plays the prosecutor in episode two yes 
but he's gone up against her as as a defense attorney. Is that like the definition of meta? Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, the thing is, like, they are so fond of each other that, you know, and I know prosecutors and defense lawyers, like, they're not friends, you know. Uh, <laughs> but he I, I haven't really met anyone who's not fond of Yvette. But the fact that Yvette and Ed have this, like, lovely relationship, too, is another reason for me to think maybe I'm close enough to this story that I, I could do it justice. I mean, I knew I would be in trouble if I hurt Yvette because my husband's very defensive. I mean, a, a lot of people who know her are because she is honestly, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Like she's every cop I interviewed or I, I reached out to got a thank you letter. Keith Stevens gave me a copy of the letter she wrote him after the court case finished where it's a full page. She's a 19-year-old woman at the time thanking him for his work. And I said, how many of these did you get as a cop? And he's like, none. This is it. This is the one thank you letter I got. And that was after the, the trial? Yeah, after the sentencing. I wonder if there's something there with resolution helping the survivor a little bit. Some of it says something about a vet, the kind of person she was, right? But some of it is about who Keith Stevens is. He's pretty emotional in episode two, but if you met him, like he's all business. He's very professional, one of the most ethical guys I ever met, just a by-the-book guy. Whenever I would ask him questions he, about a vet, he would get choked up. And and that was not uncommon. Unfortunately, the prosecutor who, who prosecuted this case, Bob Stott, who's legendary in Utah, he was very sick and dying. And he actually passed away a few months ago. So his second, uh, Roger Blaylock, you know, participated in the podcast. But again, the people involved in this were just like we just got lucky. One of the defense lawyers had dinner or lunch with the snars right after the sentencing to answer any question they had about why they did what they did. You know, that was really helpful to Sai. And that's not in the podcast. I mean, there's so much more that didn't even fit in the story. Bob Steele does make an appearance in episode four because most of the people he's worked with in his career are on death row or max security. And he gives us some Pretty good insight into what it's like to live in prison. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Tell us about Cy Snar and her connection with Zach's killer. So when I heard about the story, I knew um, my friend Tanner, his aunt, Leanne Bell, is she's in episode seven. I knew her story. I knew what happened to her. I didn't know the impact it had on Cy. So I reached, I was kind of nervous. I waited a few months because I was like, oh, you know, what if, you know, it, it didn't land the way he wanted it to, or, you know, I just didn't know. And so when I finally reached out to her, Sai actually invited Leanne. We all had lunch together. And right after that lunch, Leanne reached out to me and said, I don't want to do a podcast. I just don't feel like it's my story. I'm, I'm supportive. You can use my letter, use whatever you want, but I don't want to participate. And I said, that's fine. And so I said, that was fine with her. And then we did the, Sai and I did an interview. And then two weeks later, she backed out. <laughs> the reason that I sort of hoped it would happen anyway. And I remember telling some running friends, we were hiking up a mountain in Big Cottonwood Canyon out here. And I said, look, I don't even know if this is going to be a podcast or a story for the newspaper, what it will be, but I have to know how it ends up. I have to know the end of the story. And as a journalist, you can ask those questions that people normally don't get to ask. So I just kept in touch with her and kept doing research. And her fear was that once she got the letter from George, she found this little bubble of peace. And that if she shared that with the world, you know how great the online universe is, 
that they would crap all over it and destroy any piece that she and her husband Ron had found. And they didn't want to see that happen to her. And so she said, you know, you're probably right and let's not do the podcast. And then some things happened that made it so that probably this story was going to get some publicity down the road anyway. And so I went back to them and said, why not just tell the whole story? Why not do it our way? And she said, okay, let's do it. And in fact, Sydney, who was opposed to the podcast, then did participate. Trent, the her older son, did not participate, but they were supportive of her doing it, as was Jorge Benvenuto, George. Uh, we, his family calls him Jorge. Sai calls him George. Um, but yeah, he is supportive of them doing it, but he did not want to participate. Just knowing how she felt about the letter was enough for me. Seeing what's happened in the years since that letter arrived, I think it was 20, January of 2019, it has only every single day reinforced that we're doing the right thing. And you mentioned a couple of times that Yvette doesn't want to listen to the podcast. She's not going to listen to the podcast. Do you think, though, that sometime down the line she will listen to it? And do you think that it would benefit her to listen to it? I don't know. That is my answer to both of those questions. I made sure that in the two episodes that centered on her, we did not use the killer's name. She does not say his name and she doesn't have any connection to him at all. And so I made sure in those two episodes that if she did want to listen to any of the podcasts, she could listen to the episodes that were about her and her experience without fear of hearing his name. And I told her that, which she was very gracious about, but she, for her own mental health is not going to listen. Her husband has listened to the episodes. I don't know if it would benefit her. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it'll benefit anybody else. You know what I mean? Like, I can't say it will definitely challenge you. I've heard from lots of different people about lots of different things that were hard or were moving or that weren't harder moving for me. A lot of people who have lost kids and, you know, I lost a kid. Uh, my stepdaughter passed away in 2013. She died from a drug overdose though. So it wasn't the same situation, but anybody who's lost a kid understands like there's just this gaping hole in your life and there's anything that fills it. You're just now living with this giant hole in your heart. Like that's just what happens. And so I think there are a lot of people who relate to that, but I've been really surprised by the number of people living with trauma who relate to a vet story and who, whether she ever hears it or not, she's helping with just this, just her sort of will to like build something beautiful whether that's what you would do or how you would do it. And what I loved and what I really wanted to honor was there are a lot of ways to get to a good place. And I want people to honor the path you choose. My way is not your way. Let's help each other do what we need to do to get to that good place. Anytime a guest delivers like a nugget like that, I'm like, <laughs> I feel so bad following it up with anything. I can't imagine being okay with my mom saying I love you to the shooter. How does the Snar family react to that? You have varying uh, reactions to that, right? And even she makes a decision to go in episode eight. She wants to try to meet George, see him face to face. She's tried actually for many years. She, You hear in episode five, a failed attempt. Her husband, who's on board and has, you know, loves the letter and loves, loves George too, is like, man, I don't know if I'm there yet, right? And the kids are like, definitely not there. And I think her son is maybe, um, you know, he's struggled with it the most, their, their decision to take the letter and to 
and to take George into their lives, right? But I think that he loves and sees the good it's doing his parents. And same with Yvette. We do talk to Yvette about what she thinks of what they're doing and, and their decision. And it, that's why, again, I say the generosity of everyone involved in this story is mind-blowing. Because so often when I've done stories like this, people are judgmental or they, you know, this hurts me that my mom is doing that or whatever. But everyone is just so generous with each other. Like they understand this is really hard. Like this is like indescribably hard. And so whatever people need to do to get through, if it's never saying the name of the killer, okay. If it's taking a letter from the killer, then okay. Whatever you have to do, uh, support it. And that's the generosity that's just at every turn has been like mind blowing in this story. It's inspired me to be more generous in my own life when I feel like, oh, that's not what I would do. I, w- I want it this way. <laughs> you want some confirmation, I think, that you're doing the right thing. And none of the people in here have worried about that. They just have to do what they're doing to get through and they give everyone else room to do what they're doing, what they need to do to get through. One bit of feedback I got when I let the snars listen to, I let them, I let everybody listen to the podcast in advance, the all eight episodes, just so they know what's coming. I don't want anybody to be blindsided, right? Cy binged it. She watched just in the straight through 3 a.m. She, the next morning she calls me, we were both crying. Like it was, it was tough. That was a tough, tough listen. Um, I don't recommend binging at all. <laughs> it's, a whole, it's a lot. But she said that one of her grandchildren listened. And this is one of Trent's, the oldest son's children. And he, he said, and I think it's her second oldest grandson, that he just had never known what his grandparents and his parents had been through. I think that's the thing. And I, I got a call from Sydney last night. These are not things that they have discussed. These are not things that they have shared with the next generation, with the kids and the grandkids, right? Now they're learning that this trauma happened to their grandparents and to their parents, and it explains some things, right? And it is something now they're sharing and they're experiencing together. Um, Sai said, I guess if for no other reason, I'm glad we did the podcast because now there's a record of what happened and how it happened. And I do want them to understand what happened in its fullness, right? Not just like, oh, this bad thing happened, but to feel it, to experience it in some small way, the way they did. And that was a a pretty profound moment for me to understand that like maybe some of the value in telling these stories, some of the reason to revisit these crimes and, and the way things happen is just so that we understand the impact it has on generations of people. That's something that you don't think about that often and we don't really talk about, right? We just worry about what impact it has on us. I parent from whatever I experience. I grandparent from the same place. I keep getting insights from people and their feedback about how they're experiencing it. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to sort of help people evolve with their feelings around not just this experience, but this is now something that a lot of people have experienced, a random shooting where you just in, happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, I only have one question left, and you did a fantastic job in the production of the letter. The feedback that you're going to get, I hope, is all positive, and every purpose that you put in place to have happen, whether you know the reasons why you're making this show, hopefully everything comes to fruition for you and for the family. What a journey that you went on doing this. 
do you have anything on the horizon that you're looking at to cover next or do you need to take sort of some downtime and let this process? I wish I took downtime and let this process. And I, I do want to say before we move past that production comment, because you're absolutely right, but that uh, the team at KSL is amazing. But my co-producer, Andreas Martin, this podcast is not the podcast that it is without her. She has the experience to make this. Andrea is a friend of mine before we both got hired by KSL separately. She has a long history in, in public radio and she never wanted to make a podcast like this. <laughs> so she kind of got suckered into it. She's my co-writer. We've written every word. We've gone over every sentence of this thing, sometimes pretty contentiously uh, of, of my idea or her idea. And I am so grateful to have like a partner that I can be completely honest with. Everyone needs that person in their life. We're like, this sucks. I'm not doing it. And they can give you their arguments. And you come at things slightly differently because I think it's made the podcast just absolutely the best it could possibly be. So I want to make sure to give Andrea Smart and her due there. And now I forgot your other question. Oh, what's next for me? No, I wish I was the kind of person who worked on a project and then took a moment and sort of felt what it feels like to finish something. <laughs> but I think it's, I'm going to chalk it up to two things, my personality and daily journalism. I just, I have like four projects I've already begun. One of them's pretty, the deadline's coming up pretty quickly and uh, it's a sports podcast. So one of a completely different direction. Um, but yeah, I have a couple others that are more in this universe, but they're all narrative style. Um, I've decided this is whether I'm telling a sports story or a crime story or a journalistic news story. I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing narrative storytelling until somebody says I can't do it anymore. And then I'll just go on my own and do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here, Amy. This is uh, this has been a great conversation and uh, a wonderful podcast. And we definitely implore everyone to check out the letter. It's great, and it uh, I believe it honors the victims and survivors of the story. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the support. We really appreciate it.